We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways, in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports, and activism. Now, in each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved with, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved, and the rewards that follow. My guest for this episode of Type 2 is the great Chris Hines, MBE. Chris is a surfer and activist, best known for being one of the original driving forces behind Surfers Against Sewage. Today, he enjoys a reputation as one of the most respected and most successful communicators in British environmentalism. As the founder and original director of SAS, Chris's exploits and successes are legendary. It really is no exaggeration to say that Chris and his colleagues rewrote the rule book of environmental activism across the UK and beyond, helping SAS achieve amazing success and changing the way such campaigns have been run ever since. Just take a look at a campaign such as Fight for the Bite, for example, which owes much to the trailblazing approach that Chris helped to pioneer. Chris left Surfers Against Sewage in 2010 and set up his Grain of Sand consultancy, which sees him help organisations such as the Eden Project and The Wave in Bristol achieve their own sustainability and environmental objectives. In short, Chris is a legend and I was really excited to sit down with him for this conversation. Recorded in March 2020 at his Porth Town home in deepest, darkest Cornwall in the UK. And I'm very happy to say that the conversation was everything I hoped it would be. Chris is truly inspirational company with an inquisitiveness and openness that I found uh, truly infectious and inspiring. And I hope you do too. Of course, we covered the key milestones of his career and got the backstory of SAS and all their successes. But really, this conversation was a chance to get Chris's perspective on our current scenario, both in terms of what he's learned and what his hopes for the future are. It probably goes without saying after that build up that this conversation is full of absolutely peerless insights for anybody with an interest in campaigning or change making. But I also personally found it to be a moving and profoundly positive exchange thanks to Chris's unquenchable optimism and his faith in our collective ability to solve the challenges we face qualities we will need I'm going to suggest more than ever at the moment I'll be back at the end but in the meantime here's me and Chris Hines enjoy nice to see you you too how you doing all right yeah very good yeah it's a little bit damp from the rain I got a bit of a shower yeah walking around to see you so it's it's classic kind of in and out isn't it yeah at the minute so this is an amazing spot so is this you were saying this is where you first lived when you moved down here. Well, so this, very this, first lived this, in this site. Like. Yeah, I, I did spend six months living in a in a van. Right. Because the job I got, I moved down to work for a surfing magazine. It was the first UK surfing magazine to get national distribution. Which one was that? It was called Surf Scene. Okay. So it was the first one to get national distribution through the John Menzies and WH Smith. Wow, there you go. So it made that jump from being two, 3,000 circulation to over 10. Yeah. Um it's but, like what early 80s maybe yeah early 80s um but i i basically was getting paid 40 pounds a week right um as assistant editor wow which was like learning a skill i learned how to take a magazine to print but the job 
only paid that and that wasn't enough to have somewhere to live and a vehicle. Right. So you had to have a vehicle. So did the first six months living in a van yeah, and then um, rented the upstairs flat of this house and then lived in a caravan for seven years right where we're sitting now. Wow. So, Amazing. Yeah. And when did you um, when did you buy this place then? In 2000. Um, it was offered to me right. by my landlady's, uh, my old landlady, Vera. Her son, Rodney, came and saw me and said, do you want to buy Vera's? And, right. Yeah. And then you've put this extension in, which is yeah. like really beautiful. So it must be lovely to like have that synchronicity of like having spent all this time here and then finally yeah. kind of completed the circle, you know, yeah. to have it how you obviously really wanted it. Um, yeah. And if you look over there on that kind of the, the old photograph on the right there on the hill. Oh, yeah. So the middle building is the cottage here, but the massive great copper crushing engine, which is like a three-story building, is again right where we are. Wow. So this is a, an old industrial site. And if you, you know, this is basically a mining slag heap. So Really? Um, from, from tin mining? Yeah, this is a copper mine. Right. Yeah. But, you know, you, if you stand up here and look straight above your head, yeah. so if you literally stand up and then look out that window you see the chimney up out of this one here oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that is the okay, right that's up. the exhaust chimney to the copper crushing engine right and that so and how long would that have been in 1860 it was working right yeah okay so and then so when i first lived here there was almost nothing here so this this I, oak I tree see, next i see to it me. now <laughs> yeah, I see so, what you're talking about yeah, yeah. And, but this oak tree here this one just out the window yeah. like i put that in as a whip when right. I lived in the caravan. Right. And all these trees here are all like quite a few of them, yeah, I planted and yeah. It's nice to be re regenerated. There's not much soil here though. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. lovely. That's a great spot. So we worked out that we actually have met before about a year ago, surfing yeah. Port Town on about as cold a day as I've ever surfed. It was absolutely free. Well, it's fro it was frozen, wasn't it? Yeah, day? no, it was. There was ice on the beach, yeah, which yeah. for here is quite rare. Yeah, in Cornwall, you don't often get that in Cornwall, but yeah, it was really cold. It was a really beautiful morning, though, wasn't it? Because mm -hmm. you, you know, super offshore, so you had that kind of iridescence on the back of the waves, and then like the stream was like steaming, wasn't it? You yeah, know? because it was, it was the steam was a lot warmer than the yeah. air, so that you had that steaming effect with the sunrise coming down the valley. Yeah, it was very, very, yeah, lovely, but, beautiful but, morning. But you've not had a, a like a, a vintage winter, have you, this year, really? Uh, it was good. December, I surfed loads. Yeah, I think I had like 10, 12 surfs in December and um, January was pretty good and then it's just gone, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, pretty onshore. February's just been onshore, storm, storm, storm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what are you filling your days with at the minute? Lots of work. Yeah. Um, so... Is like, this through Grain of Sand? Is that, yeah. That's your consultancy, right? Yeah. So a Grain of Sand, that's kind of, it's me basically. Yeah. Although it's open if I want to work with anybody else because I, I kind of... There was a moment where I was running as Chris Hines, but that feels to me like I, I, I don't particularly like to be that front. Right. I like to be, you know, it's and, and why should someone else come and work for Chris Hines? Right. Associates or whatever it is. Sure. I, to me, it feels nicer to have a, a label that if I want to collaborate with people, I can. And it's under a, under a name. Yeah. That they can also have a share in that. So that's what that is. It's. Yeah, it's about driving positive change. And using your experiences that you've accrued, obviously, 
over 30 years, I guess, in this space to, yeah. kind of, to, to help other companies. Is that kind of how it well, works? Well, it's companies and to inspire individuals. Yeah, in, inspiring individuals and organisations to change. Uh, and I work with um, two, three now um, on kind of a retainer basis. Uh, and sometimes I'm that kind of um, person who provokes them. I'll challenge people. You know, I'll never back down from anything. If I think it needs saying, I'll say it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, lots of bits of public, well, yeah, quite a bit of public speaking. Yeah. Um, at varying levels. So all that kind of stuff and like some examples, you know, like this time last weekend, I was just on my way back from Northern Ireland where I'd been out working on a, um, intercultural, um, community resilience type project okay eu funding under a, a title called um peace for but working with a company called beyond skin and darren amazing guy out there and that's what he does he, he and he uses music quite a lot to kind of stimulate those changes and links between people who wouldn't normally talk right so how do you get people to talk and again activism and environment and our community again bring people together yeah. who might not normally come together so I did two talks out in um, Northern Ireland and also but also had a whole education myself when I was out there. Right. In what you way? Know? Well, Darren took me to the so-called Peace Wall um, in Belfast and it still separates the Protestant and Catholic communities um, in the Falls Road and Shanks, Shank Hill area. And, you know, there's all these murals, a lot of them about peace and some great environment ones but then there's some gates and those gates are still locked right so every still night at six o'clock on sectarian grounds yeah on sectarian grounds right. and and i think it's all too easy for you know i don't think we know that on mainland uk quite the level that that still exists i think with i think there's the assumption that you know since the good friday agreement it's it's just all solved isn't yeah. it but like even in Derry, there was the murder of the journalists i think last year wasn't there and yeah you know obviously it's still a huge huge issue yeah um but i mean obviously you know they have moved on a lot yeah. um but it's uh, and belfast you know thriving city it was great you know good vibe met some lovely people uh, also went to a national trust um, property, Mount Stewart, um, and talked to them. Learned how they're adapting, and you know, for climate change, because it's just coming in to some of their big properties. And then, you know, the national trust. There was a great guy, um, he's a bit of a visionary, who worked right. for the national trust called Rob Jarman. And many years ago, he kind of started this process for them. Probably fifteen, twenty, yeah, probably twenty years ago. Now he was pushing that agenda. Um, then they have this kind of managed withdrawal, shrinking shores um, policy okay. that they won't fight nature. They can't keep the sea at bay. Right. They'll slowly manage their withdrawal. Ah, uh, so over issues like coastal erosion. Yeah. And, right. So yeah. they, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So rather than try and hang on for dear life, it's just like accepting that natural status quo and working out how they can adapt to it. Yeah. That is pretty visionary. Yeah. So that was one, yeah. one individual that that sort of had the idea for that. Yeah, and he kind of led that, and he, he's no longer with them. He's working on other projects now, but yeah, Rob Jarman, he was a great guy. So you mentioned that you're working for, you know, different organizations and companies. Given your long, you know, breadth of experience, have you seen a change in the reasons that people are 
coming to you for advice and and the service that you offer uh i'd say i don't know that there's a change in the reason i'd say there's more of them so perhaps the land because the landscapes have changed so i think it's changed i think everybody's now you know if anybody's not awake to the fact that we we're in pretty serious situation um then they've got to be you know sleepwalking yeah um and you know existing with completely closed sensory input yeah because from the weather that we experience to all of our news um we're in a fairly dark place although i'm positive i'm optimistic about our ability to come out of it yeah um that is something i you know i do hold i think we can change but yeah, more and more people are saying, okay, what do we do? So how do we do this? Uh, and what's the process? And a lot of that is around communications. Okay. Um, Outward communication. And internal. Okay. Um, so some people will get it within a company. So last year, for example, I did a talk um, for a company, uh, 10.2 billion turnover, um, Just oil that. and gas <laughs> sector. Yeah. And there were 10 people and they'd come for a two-day away session. Um, and this was the group of people who environment sat in within their remit. Right. Um, and they'd come for a two-day away session. They went to Eden Project in the morning. And then in the afternoon, my brief was to spend the afternoon with them being extremely provocative. Right. And How do you, you do that then? Give, uh, me, give me an insight into well, I, I, what I'll that do might a look talk. like. So I, so I te- that that afternoon, you know, there was I probably spoke for an hour and a half, and then we debated. Right now, within that ten people, there are some people who, you know, there's obviously the person who invited me and made me part of their agenda. Yeah. So some people had already moved, in t- in terms of this decision making body, and then there were others who were more resistant to it. Right now, that company already is twenty five percent solar. Sure. So, so they feel like they're already so acting. they're already moving that yeah. way, but the kind of question is is you know in another five years time or another ten years time will they be completely um, moved away from all oil and gas and non renewables? And I think they probably will. And I think there were people within that room who were saying that that was the game they needed to move to. Right. So that's kind of one example of of people who would want that stimulation. Um, then there's other organizations so there's a construction sector company i work with ward williams associates and i've been with them crikey it's probably seven eight years now i would think um and they pay me retainers sometimes they use me a whole lot and other times they'll just keep paying me that retainer even if they're not tapping into me right but that agenda within their organization is a lot, lot stronger and it's gaining steam all the time. And partly as well, they're going out and challenging their clients when some of their clients come to them. Right. They're saying, well, what, you know, if we're going to take up this project on and we're going to do the, um, you know, your project management and your quantity surveying and all those things and the cost management, where, as the client, where are you building sustainability into your thinking? Right. So that's, that's kind of forward thinking yeah and trying to persuade those clients everybody who comes that they've all got to be thinking about this because we do yeah we, it, it needs to be everywhere so your job is in, in in effect to kind of help them create internal robustness to the idea that that they want to exp- if they want to explore this territory yeah and and 
encouraging them to do so, um, I guess a little bit of a um, a challenge if there's something that maybe isn't right, a debating forum. You know, I was in with Andy Snapes, the boss, um, last week, and I've known Andy since I was 19 when I first moved down here. He right. was one of the local kind of surf crew. Um, and he was going, oh, check this for a dilemma out. And we were kind of running through this dilemma between the social environmental and financial aspects the triple bottom line thinking of a major client and it was clearly wrong so we were going well how do we you know how do we change that what's the proper pathway um and sometimes there's that kind of realism so this this client seemed to be getting stuck on the fact they couldn't do anything right or, or they couldn't make that balance work so therefore they weren't going to do anything well, doing nothing isn't acceptable. Sure. So, so you help them kind of unblock, if you like. Yeah, yeah. unblock and unlock. Yeah. And then how do you communicate that? How yeah, that's, do you... so that's what I was going to say. And then the next step must be, like I mentioned, like the outward communication. Mm. And how do you... Yeah, because obviously that's a huge um, area of difficulty for those companies to, to do it with credibility, isn't it? Really? Yeah. And, and some of, you know, the there's kind of B Corps very interesting area. And, sure, something know, you hear a lot about these yeah. days, and, and that be cool that you you know this kind of change that your primary aim isn't necessarily to make money. Yeah, money is a tool. Money's there to do good things. And again, I'm working. You know, Rogers Creamery have just engaged me. Um, nice local connection. Yeah, it's about two miles up the road, <laughs> which is great. All the cream. That's teas. my closest client. Yeah. yeah, I have to be very careful yeah, health wise yeah. here. Sure, yeah, not always to come back with clotted cream. Yeah. Um, although my great niece is really intrigued by quite how much clotted cream there is up there. Yeah, I bet. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, they, you know, they're a 130 year old company. When you look, they're already doing a lot of good things. Yeah. Um, and it's how do they structure that? How do they f formulate that? But absolutely, they, you know, they're, they're, they're people and it's the dairy sector, so they've got challenges coming at them. But there's a lot of kind of, some truths and some pragmatism of getting through. Yeah. Like at the moment, a lot of people want to buy bottled milk and they think they're doing the right thing. As in like go back to the old, like get it yeah. delivered and yeah. But you need to be careful. You need to find out where the nearest bottling plant is. Yeah. Because we don't have one in Cornwall. There isn't a bottling plant in Devon. I don't think there's one in Sevenset or Dorset. Yeah. So quite what's the carbon footprint yeah, then of... Yeah, it's a lot of miles. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a, I mean, there was a beauty years ago, Ginster's Pasties in, um, they got, they got, they're kind of caught with this thing at the, the Tesco's that existed right next to them. The Pasties were going all the way up to kind of a distribution center up near London, then coming all the way back down. Right. Rather than someone just knocking on the door and going, can we have like two dozen Pasties, please? <laughs> so, and, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, there's some madnesses in the world. Yeah. So you have to, so you try to kind of help people recognize those pitfalls i mean a lot of it's yeah. probably like just common sense understanding you know how to avoid them as well right well and yeah and uh, just having the asking the questions yeah just going you know anybody got any bright ideas here what are we actually doing when we were eden when so when i first went to the eden project yeah. so i was sustainability director at eden project for about five and a half years was that from the beginning of that um just after project? I, I went in about a year after they opened or right. six months after they opened um but when I got there, they had no waste management facilities at all. Wow. Every single, um, you know, cut plates, 
knife, fork, everything was all single use straight to landfill. Wow. And my job, so my first job was to go in and sort out their waste management system. Yeah, do, do that low-hanging kind of yeah. thing. Um, and again, when we first started looking at the waste, so we went through every single bit of waste that arrived on site, either kind of coming in from suppliers and then one week we did every bin liner out of every bin and we sorted through what was compostable, uh, what was uh, recyclable and what was a problem and then went up the supply chain and changed that. And there was one moment where all the pasties were being delivered, you know, and this is when Eden were doing 1.9 million visitors a year. Right. So they were doing a lot of pasties. They were selling <laughs> a lot of pasties. And the pasties were all coming in cardboard boxes. Right. And we said, well, Why? And the pasty company said, well, we thought you wanted them. And we went, no, 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 we don't. Can they come in, you know, reusable baker's trays, plastic baker's trays? And they went, oh, brilliant. They saved themselves, I think it was something like 30,000 pounds just on the rental of the storage unit to store the cardboard boxes in. Wow. Okay. So some, you know, there's all this stuff, but, but if we'd never started that thing of having a look at what we had, we'd never have found that out. Yeah. And they, you know, they were delighted. So, and then that, so you're there for like five and a half, six years. So then once you kind of work that essentially like fairly basic stuff, you can, you can kind of start looking at more ambitious projects. Is that how it would work with somebody like the Eden Project? Well, what we then did was to, so you, you get the immediate low hanging fruit off that bit, but then we built in a a system. So we put in um, segregated bins right through the site uh, established a waste neutral team because when I got there, um, you know, it was me. I was doing the waste, creating the waste system and strategy, but also on the Friday afternoon, I'd go out and put my dirty jeans on and yep. sift through the recycling. <laughs> and I had three bits of Harris fence and a lock up container. Right, right. So I was doing kind of both. But, yep. you know, I'm quite used to early days of SAS. I was very much, you know, that was again incredibly hands on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then we built the system and we got a food composter. So all of the computressible waste all went into there. There was a brilliant bit of triple bottom line thinking. So we looked at the environmental, social and financial impacts of do we stick with them, um, you know, single use disposables or do we put in a dishwasher and, you know, proper plates and cutlery and environmentally reduced our landfill by about seven eight tons a year right we reduce the carbon and the material footprint of manufacture and transportation to us socially we created two jobs because people had to load and unload the dishwasher yeah um people got a nicer cup of tea because <laughs> which is important was, yeah <laughs> and then um we didn't see it coming but people also started buying more salad because you could put salad next to whereas on a floppy cardboard plate you couldn't put salad on right so then, so that was the social uplift. And then financially, we sold more tea, we sold more salad, and we saved ourselves 159,000 over five years. I mean, it's really interesting. So basically, on the business level, the social level, you, you start to see the impact these changes have, as well as on an environmental level. So, yeah. yeah. So that's that triple bottom line thinking. Yeah. And again, you probably don't, if everybody did that, a little bit of that on every decision they made, yeah. Because often you only hear about like one of those factors, don't yeah. you, in the debate, really? Yeah, especially, but it's a balance. Yeah, especially when you kind of currently, you know, there's a lot of onus on the consumer to change their behaviour to make these changes. 
and yeah it's interesting hearing this three-dimensional picture that you're outlining about what's actually necessary really yeah and you won't win on all of them yeah but even on a kind of basic level if you just start to think about those three principles yeah it leads you into good places yeah and again that's that kind of b cause a a version of that but that also takes in kind of workers but that's that's part of the social element and your community which is part of the social element and then your environment and your governance and you know that's the roadmap for b core so it's companies and consumers all thinking about these things and I was in Geneva doing a talk um, at a UN youth summit back in November. And, you know, often this kind of question comes up of what can people do? And I did a calculation that if those 200 students in the room were all UK students and they'll be paying £7,000 a year um, tuition fees, £9,000 a year, then that's £27,000 that each one of them has. Yeah. So you do the sums, and I think there was five, over five million pounds worth of money that had that they could choose where they spent that. Yeah. Now all universities have an option to apply for green gown status and green gown awards. That is a specific measure for universities. So if they're going to go and and. You know, it's not that they necessarily make that final decision because they need to get a good education. They need to be able to pursue what it is that they do. Yeah. But they should be asking the university, where do you source your energy? What's your waste management? You know, I've got £27,000 here that I'm going to spend with one of you universities. Who should I spend it with? Yeah, right. So getting people to think on that that level of their consumer power. even Yeah, even in something a decision like that. Which yeah. is probably again isn't something people really I don't think factor in that effectively. It's more seen as like a very much single issue thing, isn't it? Like yeah. how you can make that change personally. Yeah, and and that is you know like if everybody, if people realise you know the thirty thousand people who marched in Bristol, yeah, to sit with Greta on Friday yeah. with Greta Thunberg, that's a massive thing. A lot of those are students. Yeah. With a lot of power. With a lot of power. Yeah. And a lot of power, not only through their campaigning, but actual through real action. Yeah. Real financial action. And the universities won't want that question coming out. No. And that's one of the things around campaigning is they don't want you to ask that question. Yeah. But that should be a norm, an absolute norm. Yeah. It's like, you know, again, I do work with The Wave in Bristol. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because they brought you in right at the start of the yeah, project yeah, way back. Yeah. so like so from that was a ground up like how can we yeah and obviously there's a lot of ethical questions with those kind of developments yeah but the biggest fundamental one is where does your energy come well that's from? what i mean i don't mean that. and it's i don't mean that our wave pool's good i mean yeah. that like the, but it's that fundamental one and you can't say you know anybody who's driving a wave pool anywhere in the world that isn't sourcing that energy from 100 percent renewable either through the wire or then preferably trying to build their own on site they what hell do they think they're doing yeah because carbon-based fuels are causing acidification of the oceans which destroy reefs and people's livelihoods and sea level rise and you know destroying communities but even from a self even if you're just a self-centered surfer yeah you're destroying the reefs that you want to go and surf on either through the reef being dissolved or through sea level rise and it not breaking properly anymore. Yeah. 
So if if you can't see that, yeah, you're fundamentally, well, yeah, you're fundamentally a bit dumb. <laughs> I hate to say, well, it, yeah, I hate but to be a bit it, brutal. But no, but it's important to say it because yeah. again, you're encouraged not to make those connections. Uh, you know, I've never once really seen in that whole, de- you know, the debate. If there's any debate about the ethics of wave pools, is like what do they do to surf culture? You know, it's not about like yeah, there's you can find things about the environmental impact and whether what you just outlined but it's not exactly like he- the headline no part of the debate is it no and I, and I think the whole of surfing's in many even like surf tourism is quite like that as well completely no one, no one questions it no, no it's just like we won't worry about that because i recycle my single-use plastic you know yeah and, we, and but we fly everywhere off we go and we don't think and i mean that's you know there's part of the wave pool debate is that you you know, you you don't have to fly every time. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the era of everybody, this thing of, you know, I'm just going to go and chase a swell for two days and drop everything and damn my carbon footprint. Well, that's not leading. And that's, maybe we need to change that. Well, I don't think maybe. I think there needs to be a change. You know, there was, and this stuff has been, we've been talking about this for a long time. Sure. You know, way back in, I think it was yeah, early 2000s, which is 20 years ago now. <laughs> yeah. Um, when the kind of link between climate change and travel came up, the owners of Rough Guide and Lonely Planet, clearly in the kind of like firing line, yeah. came up with a brilliant joint statement, travel less, stay longer. Yeah. So, you know, really value your holiday. You know, do go and stay and be part of that kind of culture and give something to it. Can you reconcile that those two, you know, as a traveling surfer, is there a way of reconciling it? Cause you know, the, the hypocrisy, the guilt thing, it's such a common trope in this argument. Like, and it's to be honest, it's something to ask everybody that comes on this show. Like is how, how, how can you reconcile that? Can you do both? Can you be a responsible surfer and travel? Is that, is that possible? Um, I think you need to minimize it and I think you need to people aren't going to move that whole way immediately offsetting is what you should do when you've tried to reduce as much as you can so but what you shouldn't do so offsetting is not just an excuse to be able to continue exactly as you are taking all those you know six surf trips a year and some of them for a two-day swell or whatever or what it is and then i offset it so everything's okay that's yeah. that's not so reduce it and start and keep reducing it and you know we will we will need to change our work patterns long term yeah and that's a big societal shift that we you know if what we want to do is to go take a, a you know a month out then we need to change that very working relationship with some of the companies and that isn't going to happen with our employee, our employers, that's not going to happen immediately. But all people will be thinking about this, not just surfers. So you know that ability to go for a month that might mean that there's changes in the whole way that companies run. That isn't going to happen immediately. That'll probably take ten, fifteen, twenty years for those changes in our working lives and how we function to change. And one of the big things about this kind of you know we've only got ten years. We we have only got 10 years to make some drastic changes, but people shouldn't get hung up on that that change has to happen immediately right now. Yeah. What has to happen in 10 years' time is that we have changed quite a lot. So 
and again, you come back to flights, Caroline Lucas, you know, she's your MP. Green possibly. MP. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was asked this question. She said, yeah, you know, everybody should be able to have one flight a year. Yeah. To go and see family or have a holiday and be aware of that and probably offset that. Then tax the second one. Then flight two, start really taxing it. Flight three, uh, and an and increasingly rank up of increased levels of um, tax on your flights. Because again, it's only the Uber rich who really afford to do more than two, three flights a year anyway. And so that's that kind of way of going forward. And we need to be working our way quickly over the next 10 years. You know, it's not long. We're yeah. down to, you know, take out weekends. So 3,650 days. Well, um, take out weekends, you're down to 2,600. Take out the two months already gone. And we're, you know, we're, it, this is chipping away. That's it. That's almost like jeepers. I've got a bucket list before I die. Well, it's tomorrow, number. isn't it? You know, you just like yeah. you just said the year 2000 was 20 years ago. Yeah. Don't feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it was yesterday. And it's, uh, and that pace is staggering. Yeah. So how do you stay positive? Because you started off by saying you feel positive. Um, um, and, but then, you know, what we're talking about and with your, I'm actually quite surprised to hear that in a way because given your breadth of experience and given the work that you've done and given the shift that you've seen, presumably in the in the way that this whole conversation is dealt with, as, you know, back in the day, it was a very countercultural thing, wasn't it really? When you started with surfing and sewage, wasn't a mainstream conversation but it has moved which is a very positive thing obviously but equally the progress hasn't really been made so how do you stay positive in the face of that uh it, no it's way worse you know I, th I think there's a statistic that says more carbon's been emitted since the kyoto protocol than was ever emitted before wow <laughs> so you know you'd have to check that one but yeah i've heard that one it's staggeringly scary but we have the ability as a species to do this. You know, we can make amazing things. There's a research unit um, in Bristol University that just released something a few weeks ago that they can lock up little tiny bits of radioactive waste within a man-made diamond, so the hardest material you can get, and that battery would last for 5,000 years. So you'd never need to recharge your phone, ever. All this electric equipment here that we're looking at and making this done. Yeah. So those technologies, that's just one thing. And there's, you know, frustrating for the UK madly. You know, we have we have the best wind in terms of, you know, other than Ireland probably, in the whole of Europe. We have a company called Rolls-Royce who make the best turbines in the world. They're used to make weapons. Yeah. So why don't we see Rolls-Royce, the make, manufacturer of the best, some of the best turbines in the world, make wind turbines and make ocean turbines and make, you know, those things can be done. What do you think it will take, though? Because leadership. Because obviously leadership and, and consumer de and, and, and population demand. Yeah, exactly, though. But what's going to drive that? Because, you know, what you're talking about, that, you know, that technological advancement does come from the military industrial sort of complex right now doesn't it you know so to and is essentially what the whole system is rigged around if you like or organized around so how I mean, that's just kind of fact the fact of life as it is now so 
to that shift to what you're talking about is huge it feels like so how and of course it'll take leadership and, and a ground sort of public opinion but do you think it's going to take everybody understanding the severity of the situation for it to get there yeah and, and stuff may get you know may get worse there's a great book that i would encourage everybody to go and have a look at um jonathan porritt is one of kind of britain's longest serving and best ever environmental environmentalists um and he wrote a book called the world we made and it's set in the year 2050 and in it um it's in the character of a, a school teacher called alex Mackay, and he's looking back and he's saying we have largely made it there's been some real tough bits along the way, including the world food riots of 2023 when tens of thousands of people died on the streets the of the coronavirus. City. Exactly. All those things. <laughs> New Orleans has finally been abandoned. To sure. sea level. But then he think he says there's still some stuff to do, but largely we've made it. Right. And it, and, and being Jonathan, you know, there's uh, in there, there's blueprints for the food systems are, our health care, our finance, our governance, our politics, our tr- everything. And being Jonathan uh, and, and the work that, that he does with the Forum for the Future team, everything is referenced. Everything is a possibility. If it is funded. Yeah. Um, and given the leadership. Now, the funding, again, you know, the European Investment Bank has said it will, it's not going to, you know, it's stopping all investment in fossil-based fuels. Yeah. That's a big change. You know, there will be a prosecution, just as there was, uh, there will be a prosecution for ecocide at some time in our lives. Someone somewhere will be prosecuted for destruction of natural environment, knowingly. Now, that used to be, people would have said before, you know, 2050, nobody will ever be done for genocide. But they were. Yeah, true. And there is the the challenge for that as law. The 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 you know the Mark Carney, the retiring bank of uh, uh, the, who's the chairman of the Bank of England, um, the governor of the Bank of England. He made all of the six big banks who run the UK do a pressure test last year on their uh, how robust they were, where the risks were associated with climate change. There is a call that all listed companies will have a legal obligation that will sit at board level responsibility to be measuring and and taking positive action. Now, that will then carry with it the potential of fines and or a jail sentence. That used to be the situation with uh, with corporate manslaughter. That never did sit at board level. So when you look at when they used to build things like the tube tunnels underneath London, they used to kill a person a mile. Yeah. Now, Crossrail is saying the target is zero deaths. And that's because the responsibility comes up. There's a legal responsibility. Yeah. So that infrastructure of what's changing um, is those things. So there are political drivers. There's legal drivers coming in on all of that. And the financial systems are getting their heads around it. And the other thing that happens when they run that, that test at that level uh, for all those banks is the they saw all the risks, but wherever there's a risk, there's a chance for them also to, to, to go, okay, so there needs to be a solution delivered to that. And the first people to get to those solutions will be the people who end up running the companies that make us fit to live in the 21st century. I mean, I, you know, your, your optimism is, 
um it's great to hear just because you know when you look at the the kind of bellwether examples now you, you know even like scott morrison and the fires you know and the reaction to that like it's not exactly like you know you know that that mm. whole debate like it's just, it's just depressing isn't it it's just to be like what 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 more what do you need your country's on fire you know like what and they're just still steadfastly refusing to make a link aren't they so i guess yeah I guess I, if i'm if i'm coming across a little um no but provocative good uh, yeah yeah it, challenging well so i so i think i had a conversation probably five six years ago with my sister and she was going oh my goodness it's going a bit pear-shaped isn't it and i said I said I'd rather it went really pear-shaped as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I, because I, I the sooner we get to I the rock bottom, that, yeah, and the and I I gone. hadn't thought that it would take as long. <laughs> I didn't think we'd see some things. Yeah, uh, I never thought that we'd come out of Europe, but we 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 have, and we we you know that is where we're going. But that's all part of it, and we've got to we've got to kind of come out of there. Well, this feels like a, you know, on that, on that case. But ScoMo, just for, you know, for the, re- if he was put up for re-election now, would he get in? Mm, yeah, maybe, probably not, you would think. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like these are, these are movements of history, doesn't it? That we're, yeah. that we're talking about. And that's what you're talking about. Fun- yeah. That's what you're talking about, basically. You're talking about, this is the, the, the generation, generational societal change that is going to be required on that global level really to yeah um i mean that's brilliant to hear that because that's why i asked the question because yeah. you, i was surprised to hear you set your stall out at the start you know say oh i'm positive you know yeah a scared shitless yeah but but see can see the light yeah and i think because we have to tell we we get beaten up by you know we we got two choices when stuff comes at you you either get up and have a go yeah or you crawl into a hole and just think that you can't make any make a difference you know and I'm lucky enough to have been able to be part of a campaign that made a massive difference to the coastal waters around the UK so I can know that that can happen it can work and yeah I mean let's and be honest that wasn't the most promising at the start you, no. must, you mustn't have in your wildest dreams been able to think what you would have achieved with that you know from how it started so N- not at all and we were that naive that we you know when we first started charging two pounds membership we thought we might be able to save up and buy Sue's treatment works <laughs> <laughs> and then within a few weeks we kind of realised they were several millions so right. that wasn't going to happen Thinking. oh I forgot to say as well so Surface Against Sewage started in the caravan so the first office was was, was in the, the caravan outside the other house up the other end there yeah so how do you feel about that now that um, organisation oh, you must brilliant. be so proud yeah 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 100% amazing what a, what yeah Look, there we go. The, all my, the hairs on my arms have just stood up. Brilliant, yeah. And what's the Love one? It. And I pay my membership as well. Everybody, everybody should pay their membership. I've I've always paid it. Even when I was working there, I would still pay my dues, and I always do, and I will until the day I die. What's if you can boil it down? What's the one thing that you learned from that experience that that you can take into the subsequent things that you've worked on? That you that through sheer bloody mindedness uh, and help from an awful lot of people um, and being light of foot, you can win. You know, you, we can do this. That's, that's the message. And that's what I go and, 
you know, that's what I talk to people about. I was with a whole, you know, I'd spent all day in a school in St. Albans this week. Um, you know, I did an assembly to 150 sixth formers in year 13, uh, year eights, or nine, I can't remember. But, um, and then a workshop. And But the message was, was you can do something. And there was a bit in there where at one point, these four girls, they, and I challenged them, I said, like, run a mini campaign. So they all, the sixth form, had to come up with mini campaigns that they created in half an hour and then present them. And these girls ended up with a thing called Love Yours. And Love Yours was this campaign to say, you don't need a new phone. You don't need a new car and a bigger and a better. Love what you've got. Love yours. And be, because chasing all of those consumerist dreams doesn't make you happy. And it was just amazing for the, you know, they boiled it down and they loved it and they loved their things, their possessions. You know, and it's the same within our sport. You know, oh my goodness. I had a surfboard, my first surfboard, you know, I, my first and second, I used to, you know, I used to go to school, save all my dinner money, come home, eat the mother out of all the bread that was there. <laughs> uh, and I used to, you know, creosote all the fences, mow the lawn, do anything. And I loved those boards. And I still, if I get a surfboard, I still love my board. And... I was in the water the last summer and this guy's out there with me and he's got a, you know, 12-year-old kid and he's going, oh, yeah, and I think he needs another board. This is his short, this is his, his <laughs> big wave board or his short. I go, how many boards he got? Three. Come yeah, on. He's 12. <laughs> he's 12. Yeah, I mean, it's part of it though, isn't it? That, you know, it's part of the culture in a lot of ways. Well, it's part of the whole culture, like, collect, you know, consumerism, collecting. It's encouraged, isn't it? mm you know, but again, it's that thing you're talking about. Just rethink the relationship. Yeah, and that's love what. your holiday. Love your. Uh, you, you spoke to me about palliative care just before we started on this. Yeah, no one. You know, I'm sure if you asked this guy, Atul Gawande, was that the name? Yeah, yeah, that's his name. One of the studies of people in palliative care is that when they're dying, no one ever regrets having not had enough. You know. <laughs> product and yeah. consumerism. I wish I'd bought more shit. Yeah. <laughs> or had the bigger car or the... Yeah. No, what they miss is that not not sitting and having conversations like this between you and me. Yeah. Not telling people that you love, that you love them. Not yeah. going out and going, whoa, we check that for a sunset or a sunrise or... You know, those are the bits that we miss. You know, like Steve Jobs, it was very sad. Yeah. It? Whoa. Yeah, it really was actually. Have you read his book? No. I mean, that's a classic case of that, essentially. Yeah. Know, somebody at the end of their life with the whole world, this is my interpretation anyway, you know, belatedly realising what he'd kind of not seen yeah. the whole way. So my final question, which is something that I always ask people that are on the guests on Type 2, um, people that are listening, what would you, who who are, you know, engaged and want to want to kind of contribute and make a change, what, what would you say to them? How could they do that in a positive way? Um have a bit of sheer bloody mindedness uh do make it fun even though it's really serious you know like I, it, the last year of sas i had to go and give um evidence at the coroner's inquest into the, eight, uh, the death of an eight-year-old girl so at times it can be serious but have that you know we need to tell our story needs to be attractive so not too worthy passionate fun believe that we can make that difference 
uh, and communicate it. You know, gather people around you um, and create that kind of fizzing buzz of energy. And if someone says you can't, damn well do it. So there you go. That was me in conversation with Chris Hines, MBE. And like I said at the start, I hope you found that conversation as thought-provoking and inspirational as I did. I've got to thank Chris wholeheartedly for his time and hospitality and for the great experience, really. Um, hope to see you again and finish the conversation as we discussed at the time. Also, I'd like to thank, thank my friends at Watergate Bay for their help in pulling this one together. To find out more about Chris's work, please head on over to www.agos.co where you can find out much more about what he does. Nice one. As you probably know by now, I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so where they appear in my usual Looking Sideways feed. You can subscribe to that via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your usual uh, podcast provider. If it's your first time checking out what I do, make sure you head over to my website www.wearelookingsideways.com. You're going to find nearly 120 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. You can sign up to my newsletter, follow me on social media, find show notes for every episode. There's a lot to get stuck into. Um, so I hope you enjoy it if you do go and have a look. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.